You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. And welcome to Spookulative Evolution. Hello, David. Well, <laughs> that was a dice roll, everybody. That was a 17. That's a pretty good roll. Not All right. bad. All right. That's, that bodes well for this episode. Pretty good start. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode three of this year's Spookulative Evolution. Spooky. This year, we have been investigating the monsters of Dungeons and Dragons. Hence the dice roll. And we will continue this episode with The Beholder. The, so the whole spooky this year, we've chosen classic, iconic monsters of D&D, and there might be no more classic or iconic D&D monster than Beholders. Oh, yeah. So, on this series, we like to investigate different kinds of classic, famous, and popular monsters from myths, mythology, stories, so on and so forth, and take a look at, under our real-world rules of evolution, how might these monsters evolve or how might a creature evolve that resembles and behaves and embodies the features of these monsters yeah if we were somehow to give the process of evolution foresight and say make this what pressures and processes might result in that creature exactly this is just a fun series. We are not trying to give any definitive rules as to how things can and can't evolve. Nope. And indeed, our answer is not the only answer. Mm -mm. It's all for fun. We're playing with science. So we encourage you at home to play along yourselves. Indeed. This year, we've been investigating D&D monsters, Dungeons and Dragons, which is the now world famous tabletop RPG game where you use dice and character sheets to play as adventurers in a magical world trying to go on quests, gather gold, but often fighting monsters. D&D is full of familiar monsters from other things, like vampires and dragons and kobolds and stuff, but also a bunch of original monsters. Yes, and that's what we've been looking at here in this series. Today's monster, the Beholder, is one of the most original to the game. The last two we talked about, the Displacer Beast and the Owlbear, both had inspiration outside from other pre-existing monsters and were adapted to D&D as a new thing. Beholders are truly unique to D&D and they are bizarre. They're so weird. They are a giant, basically floating head, like big and in the center of the face, one big eyeball mm -hmm. and then instead of hair, they have like a Medusa thing going on where it's lots of tentacles but on the end of each, instead of a snake head, is another eye. Yes. Smaller little eyes. Basically a big floating eyeball with smaller eyes on it. Yep. Very strange creatures. And now, like last time, David, as the DM in the room. That's me. What are the rules? What does the book say about beholders? So like with the last couple of creatures, I'm going to be bringing us information specifically from the Monster Manual. So Dungeons & Dragons publishes a bunch of books that players can use to play the game. The Monster Manual is the book that has the information about just hundreds of different monsters that the person running the game can use in the game for the players to fight. And to give you an idea of just how iconic the Beholder is as a monster, the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual, the front cover is mostly taken up by the image of a Beholder. Yes, indeed. This is a big deal, D&D monster. Yep. And they are very odd compared to the other monsters we've discussed so far this month. So as you said, a beholder has a spheroid body, as the book calls it. 
that gets around by levitating. There are no limbs on a beholder. It floats through the air. Yep. They are large. They are classified in the game as large, which is the category of size that also includes grizzly bears and horses and tigers, as well as owl bears and displacer beasts, our previous two evolved creatures. The way the book describes the face of a beholder is that the spheroid body features a great bulging eye above a wide, toothy maw. <laughs> That's most of what a beholder is. Yep, a mouth with a big eye. A big eye, mouth, on a round body. And then around the body, usually in the upper half, are a series of small eye stalks that have a variety of more eyes. These eye stalks are described as constantly looking in every direction. They are alert even when the beholder sleeps so that it is always aware of its surroundings. The Monster Manual also describes that there are variations on the physicality of the beholder. So it says that some beholders' bodies are covered in chitinous overlapping plates. Others have smooth hides. The eye stalks themselves can be smooth, ridged like a worm, or segmented and jointed like a crustacean leg. Beholders are super weird. Our last two creatures, Owlbears and Displacer Beasts for this month, are both basically D&D monster animals. Yeah, but they, they walk around in the world, you encounter them, they hit you with their claws, things like that. Yeah, they hunt, they they have families, they <laughs> yes. have a home. They are classified as monstrosities. Beholders in the book are classified as what are known as aberrations. <laughs> which, they, which is what it sounds they like. They <laughs> are alien creatures, they are the D&D version of Lovecraftian horrors. They do not belong in this realm. Yeah, they, they shouldn't exist in our reality. The others were like slightly out of place in the natural world. These should not be able to be. No. Beholders are set apart from the previous two monsters further by a number of things. Uh, for one, again, they don't walk around. They hover or float. They fly around. Also, they are very powerful. Yeah. So the last two monsters we discussed, the book gives them a challenge rating of three, which just means that they're powerful enemies for low-level characters. The standard Beholder in the Monster Manual has a challenge rating of 13. Yep. This is meant to be, you know, threaten an entire city kind of monster. Yeah, more than four times <laughs> what we've been dealing with. <laughs> Beholders are also highly intelligent. Beholders are not just mindless monsters, you know, beasts of the wilds like our last couple. They are intelligent. They speak. They have languages. They have their own thoughts and schemes and plans. You can have a conversation with a beholder. It will decide that it hates you. Yes. That these are people. Weird, alien, floating eyeball people yep. within the world of D&D. Whereas our previous monsters tended to be very high in strength stats, beholder stats in the book tend to be more of the mind stuff. Intelligence and wisdom and charisma. These are creatures that get by by force of mind and will. Yeah. They also, unsurprisingly, have really good vision. They can see in the dark, and they have an extremely high perception stat, uh, which just means they're really good at spotting things, because of course they are. They've got several eye stocks. The main abilities of a beholder, if you are fighting a beholder in the game of D&D, uh, they can bite with their mouth, although that is not typically what they're doing. Most of the beholder's abilities come from their eyes, and this includes a bunch of straight-up magic stuff. Yes. The Beholder's main eye in the center of its face projects a field of anti-magic. Which is so cool. <laughs> Whatever's in front of it within a certain range 
If there's magic, the magic is shut off. Yes. So you can't cast spells. If you have a magical item, it doesn't do its magical stuff. It is an anti-magic cone. That's one, it's one of my favorite D&D things, just because that's so satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It really does cut that at the core <laughs> of the game. And then they have their eye rays. Each of the eyes, and I think typically there are 10 eye stalks, has a magical ray that it can shoot at enemies for various effects. The standard layout of eye rays is charm, paralyzing, fear, slowing, enervation, which just does a lot of damage, telekinetic, so it can move stuff with its eye ray, sleep, petrification, which turns creatures to stone, disintegration, <laughs> which turns you to dust, which turns you to dust, and death, which turns you to death, <laughs> which turns you to a corpse. <laughs> During a fight, beholders usually are described as firing eye rays at random. So which rays they shoot will be random and who they shoot them at will be random. They're just like a bizarre alien spacecraft launching magical beams in all directions. Yeah, just flailing tentacles, like, like fire hoses, but magic coming out of them. Yes, they are utterly bizarre in every respect, and they are also extremely magic. As far as their personality, the Monster Manual describes beholders with some of the following adjectives. Aggressive, hateful, greedy, paranoid. Beholders are described as having a deep hatred of all other creatures, mm -hmm. believing themselves to be superior to everyone else and deserving of everything that they want. Some, because of this hateful paranoia, just tuck themselves away in a corner of the world and avoid everybody. Others become tyrannical rulers and will take over a town or city or subterranean colony and rule because they believe that they deserve to rule. Yes. Beholders also tend to live in lairs. Now, we mentioned this in the last couple episodes, with owlbears and displacer beasts having been described as having a lair, a yeah. den, a place where they live and keep their babies. A beholder's lair is a lair in capital L, like a dragon's lair. Like, this is the place where you fight a beholder in the game, and you'd really rather fight it anywhere else, but it's not going to leave. Yeah. This a, is its home base. Yeah. You're fighting it on its turf. A beholder's lair is usually a large, spacious cavern, which it carves out with its disintegration ray. <laughs> the space tends to have high ceilings and vertical passages that go between different layers, which the beholder does on purpose so that it can get around the space, but its enemies can't get around as easily. And it can invoke a bunch of magical effects within the lair, such as spontaneously creating slimy areas, grasping appendages that come out of the walls, or eyes that open up on the walls of the lair and shoot out one of the rays of the beholder's eyes. Gross. When a beholder lives in an area, if it has a lair, there are also effects just on the environment around it. Which is one thing that D&D &D does that I've always found very cool. Mm -hmm. That if you're within a mile of this creature's home, there are weird magical effects that happen. Yeah, the ecosystem has been affected by the presence of this organism. Yes. One thing is that nearby creatures sometimes feel like they're being watched. <laughs> and the other, and this is a, a little hint and we'll probably talk a bit more about this. Beholders have this running thing where their dreams warp reality. Yeah. A beholder has a dream and it changes reality a little bit. So one of the effects that it notes in the book is that when a beholder sleeps, it creates minor warps in reality such that within a mile, 
marks on walls might appear, little trinkets might appear or disappear, slime might appear in some places. They like slime, apparently. <laughs> it's that, like, Ghostbuster-style ectoplasm. Yes. So a beholder's dreams warp reality. It is, because again, alien magic. Yes. Uh, there are a bunch of alternate versions of beholders or beholder-like things that come in a variety of forms, some of which are just beholders that have become more powerful, some of which are uh, things that are like beholders that were dreamed into existence by a beholder. They tend to have a variety of different powers. Their eye rays sometimes do different things. So there are other eye rays, including things like fire and pushing and dazing and frost and confusion. So there's this whole sort of extended beholder category of creatures. But the standard beholder is the creature I have described, this floating orb of eye stalks that shoots magical beams all over the place. Absolutely. This is by far one of the weirder, not, I don't know if you, you could say it's the weirdest, because there's some weird creatures in D&D. Yeah. But it's by far one of the weirder, thus its category of aberration. And, as we said earlier, it is one of the truly original. Like, this was created, made up, dreamt up by the creators of D&D. It was created by brothers Rob and Terry Kuntz, I believe both thought up and designed and drawn by them. It was included in Greyhawk, the 1975 original book for D&D. And like 5th edition, it was the monster on the front of the original 1st <laughs> edition monster manual. Yeah. So it was just there. It was also sometimes called the Sphere of Many Eyes or the Eye Tyrant. Yes, Eye Tyrant, I've heard. Yep. And being one of the core core creature you know the monster so to speak yeah there is probably no other creature more synonymous with dungeons and dragons except maybe dragons yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> with that level of notoriety and fame they've put tons of information about out about these monsters throughout the mini editions they have multiple pages in the current monster manual they have other sections in current books yeah there's a whole chapter about beholders in volo's guide to monsters yep and there have been previous books like whole books that focused on the beholder and their life cycle and their behavior and their anatomy so we have lots of extra tidbits to give us inspiration for the anatomy of these things we're not going to go through all of it because there's literally books worth <laughs> But some of the interesting things that I found while looking up info, once again, most of this comes from the Forgotten Realms wiki, so go check that out. As far as their anatomy goes, I found descriptions that said their skin can be, like, stony in texture, very hard, hmm. up to, like, the toughness of steel. That and makes sense. That They have, in game terms, a very high armor class. Yes, they are tough. They are tough, hard creatures, even if they look fleshy. And that when they die, it's so that their skin would harden further, taking on a stone-like consistency. Hmm. Like it would mineralize further. Ooh. So you can get fossil beholders. Yeah, basically. Petrified beholders. Their bones are also... They have similar. bones? They have bones. They... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. They have at least a skull, I guess. <laughs> Weird. Oh, I guess that's yeah. true, because the death tyrant, yep. the undead beholder, is a skull yep. that floats around. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Their bones I, it are... It doesn't make sense, but no, not it makes sense. And none of the description makes sense either. They're <laughs> porous and lightweight, leather-like cartilage it was described as, sure. but yet still very tough. 
weaker than the skin. They said it was more like iron than steel. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like low carbon versus <laughs> high carbon. And upon death, these would also harden, but they become brittle. So they've got weird anatomy, like alien anatomy. They have one lung, two stomachs, and some possess nostrils. Sure. But many don't. Their blood was evidently green, and they had a central blood sack that would do the pumping. I hate that. (laughs) Through the body. (laughs) (laughs) Using a muscular diaphragm. It noted that they have great vision, but evidently it's been noted that they lack the ability to see color. (laughs) Huh. At some point in the many publications. Right. I mean, they live typically underground. And that was what they said. Because of their subterranean dark environments, they don't need to see color. So they don't have that ability. All right. That makes sense. Uh, they also don't have a great sense of hearing. Okay. Yeah. They're sight-based. Oh, yeah. Excellent sense of sight. Uh, it also said they have notably poor sense of taste, potentially non-existent. Okay. The opposite of Daredevil. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I liked one note they made there where they said, uh, it's not sure then how they perceive the things they eat. And it's just, was that, it was presumed that they take more pleasure from the texture of their foods than the taste. Okay. Or perhaps the more pleasure from just the process. Yes. Of eating things. Yep. No, they described that they liked eating little animals because of the crunch and squish and all that stuff because they're right. evil creatures. Makes sense. Yeah, they are classified in the book, uh, for what it's worth, as lawful evil. Yes. Which is to say, evil with rules. Yep. Yep. On the note of them eating, they they are noted as omnivorous. Basically, they can eat any organic matter. Sure. So they are not picky, having unspecialized teeth to just tear things apart and swallow it in chunks. It did say that indigestible items would be vomited back up. Okay. So they would have (laughs) beholder pellets. (laughs) (laughs) or some that might be absorbed in the body and eventually embedded onto the skeleton, which I don't know what that means, (laughs) (laughs) but you'd have like, I guess, chunks of armor fused into the bones. Yeah. I don't know if there is an evacuation path for a beholder. There isn't for liquid. Uh, they, they evidently do not sweat or have urine or anything like that. Sure. They just expel waste liquid from the mouth as drool. (laughs) Okay, fine. Yeah. But they do defecate. All right. <laughs> so said the wiki. It specified that their stool could be up to six cubit feet in volume and would become indistinguishable from sedimentary rock after a few days because of, I guess, its concentrated mineral content. Man, D&D writers are so weird. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. One thing I found very interesting, though, is it did give some biology for their ability to fly. Oh. It is gas chambers. Okay. They have gas-filled pockets in their body. They produce a lighter-than-air gas called teusium, which collects in chambers typically concentrated at the top of the skull, Mm -hmm. so they stay upright. Right. And they have the ability to generate or expel the gas at will to control upward and downward movement and where they hovered. Right, right. Like a swim bladder in fish. Precisely, and they could expel gas through valves, basically through air vessels around the body to move themselves. Mm-hmm. So they were just puffing gas to putter around. This came up in the last episode where you have all these creatures in D&D with these bizarre abilities, which sometimes are given this in-depth discussion of biologically, how does this work? And then most of the time are written off as just a magic thing. Yeah, no, it just magically floats. Just magically floats. Yep. 
So that's an interesting alternative. Yeah, uh, this was in one of the book the the book that went through their detailed biology. Another thing that they detailed in one of these books was the reproduction cycle mm-hmm. of beholders. And in some versions, beholders can reproduce by, like you said, warping reality with their dreams and basically making a either copy or near copy of themselves. Yeah, I think this this comes up in Volo's guide, if I remember right, that sometimes a beholder will have a dream about another beholder or about themselves and then wake up and there is another beholder there yes. that they have dreamed into existence. And so that's that's definitely one of the reasons given, but there is a biological form of reproduction given. It details that they are non-sexed organisms. They are hermaphroditic. So they just, each individual is born able to reproduce. Mm-hmm. They don't breed or anything. They just, at some point in their life cycle, and they actually detailed typically around 30 to 40 years old. Sure. They will start to develop a egg-shaped womb sack under their tongue, inside their mouth. Right. I guess there's not a lot of space to work with. Right? <laughs> they said it, the pregnancy would cause extreme paranoia and causing them to hide away, but also they would start eating much more quickly. Mm-hmm. They also note that beholders have the ability to go long periods of time without food and can store excess food in either their stomach or extra parts of their stomach, and that they would stock up because eventually the womb will get so big that they can't eat it will fill up their mouth so they have to eat a bunch beforehand (laughs) to be able to survive the rest of the pregnancy and then at some point around six months into the pregnancy they specified they will give birth by unhinging their jaw getting the womb outside the mouth and then biting it off (laughs) (laughs) and then the babies have to chew their way out of the sack of course Another thing that I found very interesting is they said the at birth they're able to levitate and they have strong racial memories is the way they put it, that they have ingrained memories from birth. They're already able to speak and that their eye beams would come in as they grew, but that the parent would choose one that looked the most like itself to take care of and nurture and the rest had to fend on their own. <laughs> and also that this would be the only birth they had. That it destroyed their reproductive parts. The womb was destroyed during the process. Oh, interesting. Okay. So they gave birth to one litter? Sure. One clutch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> batch. Batch of beholders. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then that would be it for the rest of their life. And then as you mentioned, there are tons of subspecies. These are often referred to as beholder kin mm-hmm. that are associated or made from beholder parts even. Yep. But they have tons of variety that we can touch on as we're thinking through. And with that, before we get into speculating, now that we have a grasp on what these creatures are, we really got to get to our magic disclaimer. Yeah, the magic disclaimer wasn't hugely important in the last couple episodes. No. Uh, This one's kind of a big deal. Yeah, so... There's a lot of magic here. (laughs) uh, Just a bit. Every episode of Spooky, we like to reemphasize, give our magic disclaimer that there are some things that monsters are described being able to do that's just straight up magic and that cannot be explained by natural biological systems. Right. There are certain things that are outside the scope of natural selection in biological evolution, which is what we're focusing on. Yeah. This also includes like machines and stuff. Yes. But Either magic. 
things that can't be evolved, or things that are physically impossible. Yes, things that are supernatural and therefore, by definition, beyond the natural. Yeah, we can't find a biological answer to this because it's not possible. (laughs) Right, so the one that shoots a magic beam that allows it to telekinetically move objects around the room? Yeah, that one's... Probably not going to evolve that. So the eye beams... Floating via magic, mm-hmm. like those things, dreaming things into existence, warping reality. We are we're probably going to at the most skirt the edges of those things. Yes, yeah. we're not going to be able to actually achieve <laughs> a disintegration ray. I'm sorry, so sorry. If that's what you clicked on this episode for, <laughs> the next episode will be out next Saturday. Uh, so now, so now we we tackle the question of how do we make something like a beholder. With the toolkit of natural selection. Yep. There are a couple of things right off the bat that stand out as particular challenges that might limit our choices. One is that a beholder has, by my count, typically 11 eyes. Yes. The one main eye and then a bunch of other eyes on stocks. The other is that a beholder floats. Yep. And I have a couple ideas about the floating. Same. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll address that. As far as eyes go, there are a number of organisms that will end up with lots of eyes, and they all tend to be invertebrates. Yes. I have a feeling we are going to be squarely in the invertebrate realm. I think so. That's the only way to get weird enough. Especially since there's so much talk of hard outer body, which fits nicely with Mm -hmm. an exoskeleton. The eye stalks themselves. Eye stalks are something we see in things like snails and slugs. And arthropods, the fact that the stalks are described as either like tentacles or like worms or like jointed appendages, this this is all very much invertebrate territory. Yes, there's there's just nothing there's nothing inherently vertebrate about it other than that it has a skull. Supposedly, supposedly, <laughs> we're not going to see that in our nope in our monster. Well, and that's one of the this is one where we could absolutely. Uh, uh, write that one off of like I found a beholder skull no that's an elephant skull right <laughs> or big mouth with one eye no that's an elephant skull <laughs> <laughs> or it could be that the what is interpreted as the skull is the husk of the exoskeleton yes or maybe they do have an internal hard structure some cephalopods for example will have an internal shell structure that we could potentially, you know, use as our stand-in for a skull. Which is absolutely where my brain keeps going back to, is cephalopods. My first thought, interestingly enough, actually went to arachnids. Mm -hmm. And the reason was because, number one, lots of eyes. Mm -hmm. That was my first was lots of eyes. But also, I'd like to take a little detour and talk about how we get around floating. Yes. So I had a couple ideas, and I know you have a couple ideas. One idea is that it is in the water. Yep. It's an aquatic thing, and all the floating that it's doing is actually swimming, and it just lives under underwater. Yes. Another is that maybe it lives in caverns and stuff, and it's actually crawling up the walls mm-hmm. with this big eye pattern looking out behind it. But I also had the thought... Of what if it hangs on silk? Yes. And then it's floating in the air, but it's just hanging. And it's hanging in the air. So those were a couple mm-hmm. of my initial ideas for how to get it floating. Yeah, no. And I like I like all of those. The water floating is definitely where my brain went first. Uh, and it went to cephalopods, not only because you can do the floating by swimming, but that they do float. You have cephalopods with air chambers, mm-hmm. just like the, the beholders described to have. So you have nautiluses and and ammonites that have a shell for floating and bobbing around in the water. 
This is true. That also works nicely to getting it to be big. Yes. Is you can have a big shelled cephalopod, which also is is convenient for the size of the monster. Mm-hmm. And then the the only other, the other reason that's pretty obvious why cephalopods jump out is the multiple arms gives us tentacles. Lots of arms with tentacles. Yeah. And it's got ten. Yep. Which we get in cephalopods. Yep, yep, yep. But I do like, I like the, the, uh, uh, spider angle as well. Like, I think that's definitely worth investigating. The silk is cool. Yeah. Uh, and that climbing gets us... on the cave fits the layer very nicely. Yep. Fits the beholder layer. And that gets it out of the water. Mm-hmm. It does mean that size is an issue. Yes. As we've encountered before. And if we want to use some of those subspecies, there is one subspecies called the Eye of the Deep, which was an aquatic beholder. All right. So there are environmentally specific beholders. Mm-hmm. The only thing they noted with the Eye of the Deep is that it had clawed arms, two clawed arms in addition to the normal beholder anatomy. Well, and another thing to keep in mind with the beholder is that there are so many variations on beholder that we could evolve an entire clade. Yes. And have beholders that live in the forest and that live in the caves and that live underwater. Well, and that's that's also something that I've been kind of thinking of is we can either evolve a clade or and this is this is kind of jumping ahead but one of the things i had one of the thoughts i had while thinking of cephalopods is that that wouldn't actually get us the multiple eyes right we could absolutely have a monocular cyclops cephalopod that for some reason lost one eye and evolved to specialize only having one eye sure that's possible but we can't really add 10 more no, certainly not on the end of its tentacles. No, that's not that's not likely. But you could have eye spots. Yes, that, and that's kind of been what I've been imagining, that either the tentrils are the true eyes, and there's just a big eye spot on the body like a butterfly's wings, mm-hmm. or that the eyes on the tendrils are false. Yes. And it has one big eye on the body. Yep, yep. And the eye spots just now gave me the thought... Uh, if we don't do a, a clade that lives in different environments, what if it was different organisms that were mimicking? Yeah. So that you had this cephalopod that was a large, actually dangerous predator out in the water, and then you had, like, a spider that lived near it and had eye spots to mimic it mm-hmm. as a way to try to ward off you know, or for some reason it was mimicking or there was some other thing that they were both mimicking. And if you could have just some level of mimic, you know, just how like a dozen things mimic bees yep. that you could end up with that beholder kin of, well, you've only got four eye stalks, quote unquote, you know, false eye stalks. Yes. So you're a gazer, not a not a <laughs> beholder. But it turns out to be a common convergent thing that things Keep coming back to this body shape. Yes, and it's and if it's something where one, whichever was the original beholder, was so common mm-hmm. that things started mimicking it, and then you can have things mimicking mimics. Or it could even be that for some reason there is a very common group of predators for whom the eye spot is a good deterrent. Yes, and that it's the target of the mimicry is very widespread, yep, and yep. therefore you end up with this mimicry in a lot of different environments. Yeah. And I do like that because I like the idea of the cephalopod version where you have a big body that is basically a big shell yep. 
or has a shell on the inside that has the big eye spot on it. And then you've got a bunch of those tendrils that are flailing around and maybe look like the eye tendrils of a beholder. And then it floats around in its environment. Yep. And it lives in underwater caves. Well, and one of the reasons that I really like that uh, uh, as a fit is that then that also gives our quote unquote eye stocks the ability to attack. Mm-hmm. Is that now you can give them the toothy suction cups of like a Humboldt squid or the hooked suction cups of a giant squid or a colossal squid and now the eye stalks can lash out and actually tear chunks out of you yeah like actually do damage actually defend itself and it can the the eye stalks are the things doing the damage and then you know because then the stories of them having magical abilities or that there's this this paralyzing you know that can just be deer in the headlights fear when you encounter one of these things mm-hmm. and if we want to I- embellish upon the the stories of magic, if they have a flashing pattern like cuttlefish, yes, to mesmerize and to it's like yeah you know the arm charged up and then took a chunk out of my arm right that that's all I remember yeah cephalopods also potentially if we want to go there gives us a high intelligence yes the idea of an an animal that is problem solving or strategizing to some degree. That's something we see in cephalopods. Yes, absolutely. So in the cephalopod example, what we would end up with, I, f- I feel like, is something that starts out possibly squid-like mm-hmm. or nautilus-like. Yep. It could be cuttlefish because they have that cuddle bone. Oh, that's true. Or cuttlefish-like. They're very good at that floating. Where you have a large body that has a shell either on the outside or the inside, and then all the relatively small tendrils, the tentacles, the arms, are up front. Yep. And in this case, it would be a creature that where that shell became very large, probably in part as a display feature mm-hmm. with the eye and maybe even something that looks like a mouth. Yep. And if it's changing colors, if it has, you know, a layer of skin or something over that shelly part, maybe it's changing colors in that eye spot as part of communicating or as part of warding off predators And then it also has a bunch of these little tendrils that if you're looking at it from the back, look like they're just emerging from around the big round shell. Well, and if I just had a bunch of thoughts in uh, response to what you're saying, I like all of that. I like cuttlefish because we get the floating. We also get the high degree of color changing and that lets you be as weird as cuttlefish are. Yes. Which are super weird. Which really does lend itself to the alien and magic feeling of the beholder as described. And so if we go back into cuttlefish ancestry before they reduce the cuddle bone, the internal floating structure that they have and the rigid structure that keeps their body in shape was as reduced as it was and it instead embellished it to be more of a full flotation device and full internal shell. They could shorten up a bunch so that you have a squat body, big round, but not long. Yeah, squat and round. So that the arms are, because then they could also be more evenly dispersed. So that they are still up front, but they're, you can basically make like a lion's mane of arms. Yes. And I had a thought on the central eye. Mm-hmm. What if it's not their actual eyes? What if their actual eyes are still hidden? They still have two eyes, but it's the beak. It's the beak of the cuttlefish up front. A big beak for taking on bigger food items that looks like a big glossy eye. Ooh, interesting. Because they have rounded parrot-like beaks. 
Yeah, they do. So if you had a large beak visible, and if it was patterned in a way that has looks like it has a pupil, you could have that. And then their siphon, which cuttlefish don't need to swim around because they have a fin. Mm-hmm. So they can putt around with a fin. And if you have the siphon up front, that could look like a mouth. That's true. It could. It could be part of just the the behavioral apparatus. Yeah. Of the of the the animal, and it's just humans who see it form it into a humanoid face mm-hmm. with a central eye and a mouth. But really, you're seeing a mouth and a, a butthole and breathing hole and <laughs> the hole that leads to all the organs. Interesting. So in, in that body shape, I would imagine a the big round body with the shell maintaining that structure, with the beak sticking straight out, and then just the arms are up around the top of the beak. Yes, and that this would be. You know, that they would have specialized instead of having their arms all forward like most cephalopods do. It'd be more like an octopus where now we've spread them out. Mm-hmm. They've slid back on the bat body a bit and now are in a ring around the mouth and eyes. Or or eyes slightly, you know, in in with the arms so that they can see forward. And then you have this this weird centralized face. One angle that I do like about that is that if it is just a giant beak in the middle of this front-facing shell, that seems like, especially if we're going with the size, right, where we're getting big Pacific octopus size or larger than mm-hmm. that, that that is a big predator, which would lend to other animals in the sea mimicking that big predator. Yes, exactly. That if that big shape is the dangerous shape, then you could get a bunch of those different mimics of the beholder-shaped cephalopod. And a bunch of those could be other cephalopods. Mm-hmm. And when, especially if you have ones that are just mimicking it, that could explain why you get like the the smaller variety or the variety that have fewer arms or the varieties that have different features on the end of the arms. There are beholders that, the like blood-sucking beholders that have mouths on the end of the arms instead of yeah, yeah. eyes. So it could be, you know, I'm just a normal cuttlefish, but I'm going to put out four of my arms and put eye spots on it. <laughs> to look like this big predatory yep. species. And so those get called spectators or gazer ones, which are the forearmed varieties. The other nice thing about going with cephalopods is that you describe them as only reproducing one time. Yep, that was the other reason that which they... Which is another feature of cephalopods. Yes. That they will lay eggs, like we described uh, with our weird beholder biology. But also, octopuses uh, especially are noted for doing one reproductive cycle. Yes. We also, if we go with a more octopus-like behavior and and large squid-like behavior, those are Mm non-social. They avoid others of their kind. In their case, it's because they're cannibalistic, but that would lend to a beholder's paranoia and distrust of its own kind. Yeah. So in this regard... We're picturing, I, I, I'm picturing something that is kind of nautilus shaped, mm-hmm. where the shell has expanded out into a big round shape and possibly is underneath an outer yeah. layer of skin. Which is the nice thing if we go with cuttlefish, because then you can expand a nautilus-like yes. shell, but it's already internal. Yes, and then the beak and the tendrils, the tentacles, are right up front, like a nautilus, like a cuttlefish, but the beak is extremely expanded and the arms are moved more upward and spread out a bit to give this strange beholder-like appearance. And you could even then have, so what I was describing earlier is the idea where the big round body and the eye and the mouth are all just 
display structures. Yes, they're just part of the skin. And the actual face is around back with the little tendrils back there. We could still have that also as a different species of cuttlefish. Oh, yeah. That is mimicking the big beholder cuttlefish. Yep, yep. And if we if we go with like one that has the big beak and whatnot, especially with the size, if it's deep sea, you get deep sea gigantism, which fits sure. very well for a large thing. Very big. And if it is specialized in seeking out things to scavenge and you know, hunting as well, but that many organisms down there will have large mouths to help capture or take in food whenever it is available. So that would also lend to uh, its rarity that you're not finding beholders at the surface very often. They are mm-hmm. rare organisms and also why they don't group together because you're in the abyssal plain where it's just deep sea desert with not a lot of food for you to be able to gather in large groups. Yeah. And if we want to stretch a bit and move ourselves out of the water, one idea that I had is if you had a group of these beholder cephalopods that lived in undersea caves Mm -hmm. and lived there while the caves slowly drained, you could develop this species with a habit of living in the water but coming up out of the water and crawling up along the walls every now and then as part of display or as part of keeping an eye on the territory yeah but then they are crawling around on the walls of caverns which we see some cephalopods today will leave the water for Mm -hmm. various reasons and then if you have them moving around in caverns that gives us an impetus to have other land-based animals mimicking these creatures that are moving around uh, in a, a more open cavernous space. Absolutely. This is how we get my arachnid beholder. Yep, yep. Uh, the thing that crawls around and has a bunch of eyes on stalks, but then is using its we- its web to occasionally swing between parts of the cavern <laughs> or between trees and looks like it's floating. Or just while it's crawling around mm-hmm. its web, it just looks like it's floating in a 3D Oh, yeah, if it has the web stretched across an open space. In a dark space, you can't see the web, but it is moving around. So all you see is this big white eye and all these other eye spots moving around in the space with the little light you have. Yeah. Now, I like that. That, Yeah, because that was the one thing I was struggling with is how, why would other things mimic it? I really like the idea of the mimicking because... And especially if it's deep sea, it's really hard to go, all right, well, then why is a spider or something up? Although... Uh, it doesn't have to be arachnid. It could be crustacean. Oh, yes. And it could be that you have crustaceans that are doing something very similar. Absolutely. That are mimicking it. And then some of those make their way towards shallower or on land crawling up the cave yep. walls and stuff. Which then arachnids could make. And then arachnids could. <laughs> and, I, and I do kind of like the idea that the true, the true, the large beholder is this deep sea thing. But it's such a presence in its ecosystem that you get a bunch of these crustaceans mimicking it. And then that holds over towards the shallow end. Yeah. And then they carry that reputation, as it were, up towards the surface where other things start mimicking them. Yes. Yeah. And I like that because it is often described with beholders and the beholder kin in multiple things that this just this mishmash that like mm-hmm. some of them are the dreamed up half creations of a beholder. So it's not another beholder, but it's baby dream version or a half a beholder, some things are created by beholders. So it's like a beholder with arms and legs 
and a big eye in the chest of the torso. Mm-hmm. Like a whole bunch of weird things. One of them was a tree with eyes on the branches and mouths on the trunks. <laughs> I think there is also a fungus in 5th edition that mimics the shape of a beholder. Yeah, right? But it's like, but it's made of mushrooms and stuff. So like, I like the mimicry because that brings in the whole beholder kin without having to magically bring them into existence. Yes. You get a bunch of weird, like for some reason, the eye spots of a beholder are a very good thing to mimic. And it's okay for there to be some mystery there because we do not fully understand why eye spots are so common among modern day Mm -hmm. mimics. The original idea was that it would scare off predators. There's not actually direct supporting evidence that that is what's happening. Mm -hmm. It's very heavily debated what eye spots are doing. They definitely seem to help. They definitely seem to help with predation, but we don't know why what is actually driving the predators off. So uh, this could be one of those where for some reason that is a very ingrained and and useful defense mechanism. Yeah, I, I like this also because... In some cases, like our big cephalopod beholder, it is a very unusual body shape. Yes. For said we have evolved something that has gone down a very unusual path. But for something like a spider to just put some eyes on stalks and then have a big round body with a display on it, that's pretty standard spider stuff. Yes. Uh, the eye stalks are a little weird, but otherwise, it's very easy to see a spider doing that. Mm-hmm. It's not out of the question to see a crab or something like a crab doing something similar. So there's all sorts of different options for us to just fill a world with different beholders that have all converged for whatever reason on a similar body shape. We could even invoke different parts of the life cycle. Mm -hmm. Maybe our giant deep sea beholders have young that live higher up in the shallows. Yes, absolutely. And they're floating around up there and influencing these patterns that we see in more shallow water organisms. Yep, yep. And then maybe they just evolve them coincidentally very similarly yes yeah (laughs) i like that i also like uh the idea of if it's even if it's not deep sea if it's open ocean of why it seems to be waving these eye stock these its arms around its eye stalks around willy-nilly which is not what we typically think of cephalopods doing but if it's a i'm i'm ready to catch any food that happens to get too close so I'm casting a wide net with my arms. Oh, yeah. Well, and the waving the arms around, especially com- combined with the doing visual displays, mm-hmm. could easily be a threat display. Mm-hmm. And the reason that gets recorded by the people that see it is because the thing sees them as a threat. Yes. So it's waving its arms around and doing weird color displays to get them to go away. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Probably wouldn't be a very fast-moving cephalopod. It'd be just puttering uh, around. Beholders have a fly speed of 20. Yeah. In the 5th edition Monster Manual, so they're rather slow. Yeah. There you go. So they just be puttering around. <laughs> Not too fast. Catching food. And it also would make sense if they are living in a, a habitat like that, they, why they can go long periods without food. Yes. They're, they're very energy efficient and good at catching food when it's available, but can survive long time, long time between meals. Yes. I also really like the idea. So there is that mythos of the beholder dreaming up other beholder-like things. Mm -hmm. I have this image of a beholder cephalopod that lives in a reef area or in an area of various, you know, deep sea cavern and complex topography. And since it's there, you get other crustaceans and things that evolve a similar mimicry. Mm Mm-hmm. With their arms flailing around and a big eye spot on the back of the body or something. 
and they will congregate in the area where the big beholder lives. Mm -hmm. So as people go to investigate that environment, every time they go back, there's just more of these little (laughs) beholder crabs that are living there because they're living around other animals that are already scared of the big one. Mm -hmm. So their mimicry is beneficial as a defense mechanism. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the reproduction of dreaming them into being, uh, as far as the biological version of reproduction, uh, there are cephalopods that carry their eggs with them. Uh, the blanket octopus carries its eggs with it until they hatch. So the, this cephalopod could be carrying its eggs. And if it just goes a large animal route and reduces the number of young mm-hmm. and grows very large eggs that are going to hatch more mature, more ready to go young, uh, which is not. That's probably the the most divergent <laughs> of right. all the things we've mentioned, because all <laughs> cephalopods, to my knowledge, have lots of babies, right. like hundreds at minimum. So this would be a very different breeding strategy, but it would fit very nicely with the lore. Yeah. So we have created a cuttlefish-like cephalopod mm-hmm. whose internal shell, the cuttlebone, has expanded into this large, round body. Covered in skin still that it can modify the color of in a variety of ways with a big beak right in the middle that looks like a big old eye and then the arms waving around above it. Also part of various displays that it can use as a threat display, which also ends up inspiring a bunch of mimics among other cephalopods and crustaceans in the water that give us all of our beholder kin. Yes. Also, I will admit it is rather difficult to justify the existence of the arachnid beholder as a mimic of things that live down in the ocean. So I will simply propose that my spider beholder is just a coincidence that lives on land (laughs) and it lives in caves and it has a big round body with an eye spot on it and it crawls around on webs that it stretches across the cavern and fluoresces or something. Yeah. Because I really like my spider beholder. And I like that too, because (laughs) that's one where... uh, it could be using eye spots for very similar reasons, and it's just been given the name Beholder because oh, of people yeah. who knew, like, people... It's just named for it because it looks kind of similar. Exactly. That's, well, and especially if this animal is such a big deal, mm-hmm. like Beholders are in D&D, that name's going to get slapped onto all sorts of stuff. Exactly. And there can be Beholder flowers and Beholder mushrooms, and there are things that just kind of look like the Beholder animal... That get the name slapped onto them. And if we're deal if we're dealing with a world that has yet to figure out <laughs> how to sequence genetics and really distinguish your your branches of life, absolutely people would be like, well no, there's a cave beholder. And yeah. it but it, it doesn't live in the water. No, it, they're smaller. It's smaller, and it doesn't seem to be quite as tough, but Oh, but they float around in the air. Yeah, no, these can and fly. Flash their eyes at you. Mm-hmm. And that they get this mythos around them that just it is, and and that it just seems too much of a coincidence to not be a beholder. Mm-hmm. Only because then if you have spiders, you can do all the weird stuff. Like, they can do all sorts of weird stuff with their webs. You know, they can have yep. really good perception, because if you bump in any part of their web, they know you're there. You could have people get caught in the web and then attribute it to an eye beam that paralyzed them mm-hmm. in place. And if spiders are doing it, there are tons of insects that will mimic spiders. Yes. So then you could have a whole bunch of on-land mimics of your spider beholders. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So what we have done here is created a world 
of beholders, <laughs> which I think is a, is what happens when you have something that is either so weird that it doesn't obviously fit into one group of animals and or something where your humble hosts can't decide on which version <laughs> of the boulder they want to do. This is like when we did sea serpents. Yes, I was about to say. <laughs> There's just tons of them everywhere. It's just, This is just a another <laughs> body type that has become, for some reason, very successful in this spooky world. Yes, beholders are like crabs or... <laughs> wasps or things that are real or trees instead of carcinization it's beholderization Beholderization. (laughs) gazification the beholding (laughs) the whole world the whole world will soon become part of the tyranny (laughs) i like it so what we've i think that we have created something suitably ridiculous and bizarre what for the beholder i like it from a like a mythos standpoint that people trying to make sense would come to the conclusion that these are some alien thing of like oh, yeah. some of them are are hard and not, like their eye stalks are knobbied mm-hmm. and and jointed and others live in the water and are some squishy of them float through the air like well and also we we've landed kind of predominantly on cephalopods and spiders which are already basically aliens yes yeah. yep they are already very strange creatures so they they would build up a a <laughs> reputation and myths and superstitions readily very very quickly yeah so i like that and with them both being predatory and creepy you know quote unquote that generally unnerving to most human shaped organisms that would give great reason for people to attribute malice and oh absolutely evil machinations and you know that they they stay away in their layers and and plot and scheme so you can build up that reputation as that lawful evil creature very easily yeah yeah. Cool. Well, we we've done beholders. Yeah, this was one I had I had no solid clues for. <laughs> nope. And as usual, listeners, if you are so inspired, come up with your own ideas. There's it feels like there's a hundred different ways you could go to evolve something beholder s. Absolutely. If you check the episode description, you can find our social medias and our Discord and stuff and places where you can engage in conversations. Uh, and your own ideas about how a Beholder-like thing might evolve. Also, we always like to remind people that if, on the off chance, our discussion in Spooky inspires you to create fan art, go ahead and share it with us. Yes, please tag us, send it to us. Use the hashtag Spooky. We'll be checking that out. Uh, Or simply tag us on Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is, or share it on our pages. Put it in the Discord. Put it places where we'll see it. We should put those hashtags in the description. Uh, we should make some hashtags. Oh, yeah, let's those, do that. That's because that's how I think the kids these days do it on the Internet. That sounds about say, right. This so is the hashtag. Check the episode description and there will be a hashtag or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're learning how to use technology. There is one more spooky episode left for this month, this whole year's worth of spooky. Yeah. Yeah. So check in next Saturday for the last, but by no means least yeah monster of our D D series we usually like to save the weirdest ones for last <laughs> so come back next week bye thanks for listening to the common descent podcast You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.